0: Christ's authority over my life is the place that allows me. It like shields me, and it allows me to go forward. It, it's it's the whole reason for how I can be. What I what I called this was headship submission, the patriarchy. That's quite a handle. To put on a message but I've been thinking a lot about these issues and and what it means it, let me let me give you some of the background for why for where I approach this from so so one of the central issues involved in this conversation is is the subject of authority and I've not been known to be a friend of authority structures for most of my life I I, I have a real propensity towards rebellion actually in my in my youth and in my young adult life. I very much consider myself a rebel, and this chafing against authority is kind of built into who I am and the the kind of person that I made myself out to be on my own but But you know becoming new in Christ means reorienting all those things in your life and so So I have this kind of, uh, how do you say, interesting and complicated relationship with the subject of authority, because I recognize that it's a it's a it's a it's something that the scriptures talk about at great length, and and that to to be stuck in the place where I naturally approach those issues is to be stuck outside of God's view. So I've spent you know I've had some some major times and movements in my life where I've had to address the issue of authority. What does God mean in authority and how does authority work and what is he sanctioning and what is he not? And there's nowhere where that's more of a complicated balance and dance than in the subject of marriage and how authority has to do with the complex of marriage. And I'll say that I was thinking about it today, this morning when I was preparing and I'll we, we will have our 23rd anniversary this summer and we've been together for 25 years so we were together for a few years before we married and I don't know that um, I don't know if there's if there's any issue that is more complicated for Eric and I to navigate than what this complex of authority, headship, and submission looks like. And the reason for that is because um, some some people say opposites attract, and and a lot of marriages are built out of people with very different sensibilities. Eric and I are not that way. Our sensibilities are rather quite similar. It's very rare that we disagree on anything over the course of our life. I, I'm glad for that. I, I take it as a blessing, but... Um, But when we have had disagreements, when we've come up against, you know, competing wills or competing interests, it's really a complex series of issues to resolve, not just relationally and like for the dynamics of our family and our relationship, but like what is God, what is God trying to do? Okay, so there's part A of the complexity. Like, what, what, what does it mean? How, how, what are the tools within marriage that allow us to deal with conflict resolution? And what does that have to do with headship and authority? And then, and then two, like, what about all the abuses we've seen? What about all the tyranny under the guise of Christian headship that we've seen? And what about not even... Uh, there's a whole complex of abuse, like literally straight-up abuse whether it's physical, emotional, verbal, like just abuse. But then then there's also just like unhealthy, like where there's this assertion or dominance or all these things that we know that the human heart or rebellion and all these these things that that make relationships not well, especially marriage relationships. So there's so there's our own uncomfortability there's the abuses and the problems that we've seen. And then, then there's a whole nother complex of issues that make this complicated that has to do with our time and place. Like these issues are very difficult to discuss objectively in the time and in the place where we live. Because they're not, um, the way that the Bible talks about these things is not the way that our culture at large talks about these things. And so now we have to now we have to navigate this this complex place where being being people of our time and place we're we we come into the world with a certain sense of sensibilities around this complex of issues that doesn't always feel like it fits very well in line with either the old view of these things or the biblical view of these things and where do we concede and compromise those things with our culture and where do we kind of stick to our guns and these literalist frameworks. So here's three major complicating factors for looking at this issue. And I I want to encourage us to step over those complications and try to ground a framework to begin with. Like, like if we go, if we try to get to the bottom of what's God trying to do with this issue, the issue of Headship, authority, leadership—how does it work? What, what's what's the design behind it? That's where I want to. That's where I want to begin. Um, let me start with a definition. This is just out of my head, so don't give it more value than it's worth. But the way I the way I I think about authority is this: authority, just generally authority is the outworking of the process of an institution performing its will and purpose. Let me say that again. Authority is the outworking of the process of an institution performing its will and purpose. See, I want a I want a sufficiently broad definition of authority that applies to any authority construct. It applies to civil authority, it applies to uh, occupational authority It applies to academic authority It applies to relational authority it applies to spiritual authority So we have these institutions And institutions are interesting things Institutions are They take on a personality of their own It's kind of like the American concept of a corporation That this collection of things Equals kind of an identity Equals a thing on its own And that's what an institution is It's a structure that has kind of a, a Sense of being on its own. It's made up of a bunch of parts, so you think of, of, of the state is an institution, uh, uh, a college is an institution, a church is an institution. These are things that they're not really people, but they're kind of like people. They're, they have personalities, they have interests, they have purposes, and when, when you look at an institutional structure and you say, how is it doing what it wants to do? authority is the answer. So the military is an institution. The military isn't a person, the military is a bunch of different people and they're all doing their part to to ideally serve the purposes of the institution. Now, when you look at when you look at authority structures, there's a there's an ideal at least in the western world where where authority does not connote value. What I mean by that is that the president of the United States, under the ideals of American democracy, the president of the United States, the highest authority in the land, executively, and a janitor in this building have, are equal under the law. They're, the One is not supposed to pl- apply differently to the other. That in the ideal framework that we all accept culturally, and civilly, there's supposed to be an equality. Like The law is supposed to apply equally. The rights are supposed to apply equally. They're supposed to be the same protection and basis, even though they're serving different functions. So this isn't a new notion in institutional organization, but uh, the same would be a, a policeman. If a policeman pulls me over, he has an authority in that situation. He He's expressing the will of the civil structure. He's fulfilling its purpose in other words to keep people obeying the laws that are written through the process of legislation. his job is to express the will of that institution and and so he can pull me over, he can put me in handcuffs, he can take me to jail he can do all these things that I can't do to him because I'm not in that place. I'm not in that position. So positions are the way are where where this authority the, the operational will of an institution is being exercised. The, so, so let's think about this in, in biblical terms, um, especially biblical narrative terms. One of the big issues in Jesus's life in the gospel is his authority. They, they ask him, you know, if you, if you run a word study, like it comes up over and over again, who's authority, who's authority, who's authority, who's authority. They're not asking him what he's done. That's obvious, you healed the person, you you did this thing, you did that thing. They're not asking what he's done. They're asking in whose authority has he done them? In other words, they're trying to work out either passive aggressively or with real honesty and integrity, who are you representing? What's your purpose? Whose will are you demonstrating when you do these things? This is the controversy that happens with the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, right? Like, they want to confer the, the institution of his authority to Beelzebub. He casts, out devil, he casts out devils in the name of the devil. That's, that's what Jesus calls the... That's the context that stirs his conversation about blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. So they're putting as the source of his authority the kingdom of darkness and and Jesus through his through his teaching through his life and through his works is trying to demonstrate where his authority actually is derived. So he's making claims about where his authority comes from and demonstrating that and people are asking themselves is that true or not. So so their question again isn't what are you doing it's who whose will are you expressing what is your identify what is your identity how do we identify where this is coming from that's really the question where is this coming from how do we classify this and how should we understand the meaning behind what's happening those are the questions that are being asked around the issue of authority Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 7, and we'll look at probably the pinnacle story that deals with this issue. Um, In Luke chapter 7, it says this, Now, when he had ended, just starting in verse 1, we'll just get the context. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly saying that he was a worthy he was worthy for whom he should do this for he loveth our nation and he hath built us a synagogue and then Jesus went with them and when he was now not far from the house the centurion sent friends to him saying unto him lord trouble not thyself for i am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof wherefore neither thought i myself worthy to come unto thee but say in a word And my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel." And they that were sent returned to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Okay, so what's happening here? I think what this centurion is expressing... So Jesus is doing all these works, and all these miracles, and all these teachings, and he's living this life, and he's got this public ministry going on. And his his object, time and time again is to display his authority, to demonstrate that I am actually from the Father, which is a big claim he knows, and so he's willing to verify it. And so in his attempt to verify this claim that of his messiahship, that of, his, of his orientation with the Father, he's doing all this stuff, all this work that he does, all this preaching that he does, all this teaching that he does, all this healing that he does. And here he comes to someone who's an outsider, someone who's not an heir of the lineage, of the tradition of the oracles, of all these things. And this man says, he's, so it's kind of worshipful to begin with, right? Like, it's a recognition of who, how great Christ is. That you're too big to fit in my house. Like, this isn't the right place for you. So that's where he begins in humility. And then he elicits this principle of authority. Now, I think what the centurion means, and I'm reading between the lines here, is that he knows that the reason his servants obey him is not because he's so strong or mighty or persuasive, but that he's a part of a system much bigger than himself. The reason his servant goes when he says go is not because he's Joe, whoever, it's because he's a centurion, because he's a place. In an institution that has power to do those things, to tell someone to go and to do, and they will go and do. And what what the centurion's expressing is his confidence in the institutional order that he represents. And when he makes that claim, when he makes that claim about himself... He's insinuating the same about Jesus. You represent something different than yourself. It's not the power of your personality. It's not just that you're super smart or super winsome or even super holy that you're allowed to do these things. You are a part of an institution, namely the Godhead, that allows you to do these things. And because I can see that... I know that this stuff isn't time-bound. It's not bound to you. You don't even have to come to my house. You hold this authority regardless of where you are. You have this power wherever you are. And it's that recognition that Jesus is begging and pleading his own people to understand about him. And here this outsider picks it up like that. So there's a there's an example of how how Jesus is impressed with this understanding of authority. Uh, let's let's turn to First Corinthians 15. I've, I've been having these conversations with people some and and there's a there's a position out there that says that this way. That Jesus lives in under authority, under the Father's authority, is a temporary disposition because of his place as a man on earth. That this submission to the Father's authority is not a feature of the Trinity, it's not a feature of the Godhead, it's just a feature of his manhood. That that's the reason why he's submitted to the Father. But outside of his occupation as a man on earth, he doesn't hold the same place of fidelity or loyalty to the Father. That's not true. 1 Corinthians 15. Sometimes this discussion is called the eternal subordination of the Son. It's kind of a big deal. The argument over this issue. But what I would submit is this. In 1 Corinthians 15, I I would read the answer to this question of how the how the son is related to the father outside of his domain as a man it says in verse 24 then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of god even the father when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power For he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifested that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all these things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So here we have a zoom in to the very end of all things, the end of our eschaton, like the plan as we know it, when it comes to fruition, when everything has come to pass, and all power and all dominion and all things are subjected to Christ, all enemies have been put under his foot, and even death itself is done away with, then Jesus finds himself in submission to the Father. It's the eternal position. There's a fourth category of reasons why this is a difficult subject to address. And I don't know if any of you have had the same experiences I have, but these very passages have been used by institutions in bad ways to intimidate and to control people. And I don't think that that's what God's intention in teaching these things are. I think that there's a way... um, I think there's a way to teach and understand these principles that are not a shortcut for control. They're not about power. They're not about... uh, I want to say the word force, but it's force implies physical. It is force, a way to compel and to constrain and to control. There's a, there's a lot of leverage in these kinds of texts to do that to people. But there's also a corrective. There's a corrective for that tendency, and I want to look at that. 1 Corinthians 11. We're already in 1 Corinthians. So here we've seen how Jesus is relating to authority and how he's looking at authority and how he is under authority. And then we can go to 1 to Corinthians 11 and and we can see how this relates to headship. Be followers of me, in verse 1, as I uh, even as I also am of Christ. Um... Verse three, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if a woman be not covered, let her be also be shorn. But if she, be, if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man, obviously appealing to Adam and Eve, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man, for this cause, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things of God. That's an important phrase because it's there in, in, in the Corinthian passage in 15 too, That That God being in, infused in this whole order is the point. Okay, so here we have this... This, um, this parallel comparison woman is to man is to Christ is to f- the Father so, so the point in this and this is one of the big correctives of this passage and this institution uh, and how we we're viewing this, uh, this, what authority looks like is that these should be these, these institutions should be mirroring each other like what it looks like for Christ to be under the Father is what it looks like for a man to be under Christ is what it looks like for a woman to be under a man. That there's an equity in all of these relationships. They're 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 um, they're mirrors of each other. They're functioning in the same way. So the the it's also true that origin is the source for why these things are such. Like, in Paul's framing of this whole issue, the reason for this, I want to use the word subordination, that means under order. Subordination. Jesus is subject, he's subordinate to the Father, man is subordinate to Christ, woman is subordinate to man. In that that view, origin is, is the rationale. Christ comes from the Father, the only begotten of the Father. Man comes from Christ and woman comes from man. Like that's what where the where the principle is deriving its rationale from. So so that means some things. It means that we can tell the how in order how subordinate How under order a relationship is by how much it looks like what it's modeled after. So if the relationship between a man and a woman doesn't look like the relationship between Christ and and the Father or, or mankind and Christ, then something's out of order. Something's literally out of order. These things should look like each other. And that's a big corrective. It's also a big corrective that the church isn't mentioned in this order. These are relational. These are personal relational. Let's let's flip over and I want to look at one more passage together just so we have everything on the table in Ephesians and then I want to talk some about how to how to approach this. Ephesians chapter 5. You know, these are all verses we Grew up learning from our youth. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Uh, Let's back up, because we don't want to miss this closing clause in 21. He says... um, This, this chapter starts in verse 1 about being followers of God as dear children, walking in love, don't do these things, do these things, and then this injunction begins to, um, in 18, drunken wine is excess, be filled with the Spirit. The result of being filled with the Spirit is that you'd speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody, and in your heart to the Lord. So there's like this joy that comes out of the Spirit. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another. Reciprocity. In the fear of God. Because we are all under God, because we're all subject to the fear of God, we're all submitting to one another. Now, zero in on specificity. Wives submit that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives even as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I think that any any conscientious husband should, any conscientious man who can imagine himself as a husband, is a little bit afraid of this passage. And I think that there's more than a few women who are afraid of this passage. The thing about... The thing about the way that God displays his purpose to the world is through, he communicates very often through, not 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 just individuals, although he does that sometimes, but he communicates through these institutions. He communicated through the patrilineage of Abraham. He communicated through the nation state of Israel. He communicates through the institution of the church, but all the way back, way, 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 way before any of those things were anywhere near fruition, God set up the prima institution to communicate his will in the world, and it was the relationship between a man and a woman. Now, I often use this rationale when I talk about divorce or marriage because, because, we often stagger a little bit at the consequences associated with marriage. Like when we talk about divorce or marriage as the church, the consequences are so heavy and so costly when things don't when things go awry in a marriage, the 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 fallout from that is, is devastating. E- even to set it back is devastating. And so it's a little bit like a heavy a heavy ideological box to carry to talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage and all the implications of it. But the reason for that is that God's been using this institution as the original instant human institution. So when God creates human order, when he creates mankind, you know, he could have done all kinds of things. He could have made a father and a son. because That would make sense, right? Because... The father and the son are 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 the are the the origin of the creation and the godhead. So a father and a son would be a perfectly sensible way for him to start human institutions. Uh, two brothers could be you could make all kinds of hay typologically out of two brothers who are made. Like there's all kinds of institutions that God could have made to start off the institution of humanity, but he very purposely takes a man first, creates him in isolation, and draws a woman out of the man. And that means a lot. That's what what all this stuff that we're reading about goes all the way back to that original plan that God has. And it's not about you and me. It's not about man and woman. It's not about even Adam and Eve. It's about Christ and God's eternal plan for mankind. That's why that's why it is the way it is. Because he wants everything from beginning to end to be about Christ and his church. This has always been the plan from 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 the very first act to the very end Christ and his church. And all of us are playing out our own little piece of this drama and saga, ideally, as Christians, to represent, to reiterate, to recapitulate, to rebroadcast this intention for the whole human saga about a man and a wife. This is this is the authority. This is the institution that this this authority is derived from when we talk about authority as the outworking of the will of an institution when we talk about headship order and the way that 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 homes should work and marriages should work we're talking about demonstrating the 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 purpose and the will of the institution of god's creation and that is christ and his church That's why Paul can say, in Ephesians, I speak a great mystery. It's told us all this stuff about how men and women should be in a marriage together. I speak a great mystery concerning Christ and his church. It all is cycled back in. And so so it's really brilliant, right? Because I know... Okay, so sometimes, sometimes I'm a jerk. Sometimes... I don't speak wisely. Sometimes I don't empathize well. Sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I do I do things wrong. But what I always know is how I'm treated by Christ. Like that's an internal compass. It never leaves me. I know, I know, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm doing, no matter how frustrated I am, no matter what's not going right in my life, I know how I'm cared for and loved and and, 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 and that Christ's authority over my life is the place that allows me it like shields me and it allows me to go forward it, it's, it's the whole reason for how I can be it's the source of my health and my identity and my hope and my future it's where my grace comes from all these things and that's supposed to be the internal compass for how my wife should feel And I can project it forward and backward. I can know that that's exactly how Christ felt on earth. When he was here, he felt empowered and ennobled. He felt like his source and his power, his authority, his ability to do and be all came from who he was in his father. And that's how I feel. And that's how my wife should feel. Because, see, what it is, and I think this is the part where our cultural sensibilities sometimes get in the way. I think it's a fairly modern phenomenon. Because, historically speaking, when you talk about marriage, you talk about a, a man going somewhere in his life. He has something he's going to do. I don't care if he's, a, if he's a peasant farmer or if he's... A, or if he's an aristocrat who's going to be a, who's a prince or whatever he's going to be and do, he has some place where he's going to be. He's going to start a family. He's going to do this, these things. He's going to be a part of his community. He's going to be a part of his tribe. He's whatever he's going to be. That's what his destiny is. That's what his plan and his future looks like. And along his side comes a woman to go with him where he's going. This is how I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a very good argument to be made that this is the historic understanding of the institution of marriage. She comes alongside him and they go together. And she becomes a part of his life. They become one and now they go together. And as they're going together, you know, they go here, they go there, they do these things. He's brought her on as a part of his life, as to be one with him, and now they now he's much more equipped. Now he's much more able to do the things that he wanted he's he's going for. But that doesn't, always, that doesn't always jive in the modern sensibilities around marriage. What we have now is often two people that have charted their own course and they're trying to figure out if they can yoke their wagons close enough together to both keep going their own way. And I think a part of why marriages don't work very well in the modern world, statistically, is because of that exact thing. Because of trying to pull two different directions instead of coming together to go one direction. If we go back to the 1 Corinthians example and we talk about headship what that means it's a curious expression and it's not it's not just spoken of in the institutional sense because you know he appeals that um, that there's shame or or dishonor to his or her head like it's a it's a It's graphically represented. Like, for a man to pray covered, to prophesy covered, is to dishonor his head, to bring shame on his head. And for a woman not to pray covered or prophesy covered is to bring shame or dishonor onto her head as if it really is like a head in a body. Like, it's a graphic metaphor. So why? why? What, what, What can we derive from that? I think that um, I've happened upon um, a way of understanding this better than I had. What I mean by that is that usually when I've read about this, talked about this, or listened about this, what we derive from that notion of head and body is an over-under sensibility. That the head is the top, and the body is the bottom, and... And like in a very pyramidal, hierarchical way. And I, I, as I was meditating on this this week, I was thinking a lot about these, this text in particular and headship as a concept. What I what I begin to realize is that I'm not sure. I don't think that's the point. Let me illustrate how I happen across this idea. If I want to do something right like just think of yourself and you want to do something I want to pick up the laptop or open a book or walk to the other side of the room how does that happen like what does that process look like does it look like my brain is like a control tower that says okay loosen up your shoulders and now loosen up your bicep and now both of them together and then reach out and like and now be careful now sense now grab the close your fingers like every action is articulated by my head not at all there's actually a neurological disorder where that happens uh i don't know if that's the one where the where the, the median line is split. But there's some, dis, some neurological disorder uh, where, where you lose a sense of your body. Like you feel disconnected from your body and you have to move around that way in the world. Like you have, in order, you have, these people have to learn how to walk because they have to consciously control every single muscle and action that they do. To pick up a cup, to walk, to drink, to eat, they have to consciously control every single action. And imagine how debilitating that is. It's not at all how my body works. My body works in harmony, in synergy, with my head. My head says, I want to pick up the laptop. I don't think, it just does it. It, I don't, it just does it. It works together. Well, who's in control? Well, my hands are doing all the action. I, I don't know. Like, the way this came up, somebody asked me, Um, is it right to say that a marriage is 50-50? And I said, you know, I I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of that question. Because if I pick up this laptop, is this 50-50 my body and my my head? No, it's just 100% me. It's just me. Like, I don't know how to make that kind of differentiation. It's just me. If I want to walk to the couch and sit down, or if I want to, whatever I want to do, there's not a there's not a there's no division. I can't separate what's what's my intentionality or my my sensory capacity or my le- neurological capacity from my muscular activity. Like I can't distinguish those things. And in order to do so would mean that something was wrong, not that something was right. What we know of as personal autonomy is the conjunction of our physical being and and what we call our head, our intellect, our reason, our will, our our purpose, our what all those things. Like the non-corporeal and the corporeal part. And I think that's more the intention that Paul has in using headship is not to delineate a role or a responsibility that one is over and other is under. But he's delineating a relationship between how a whole individual works. He's using, he's appealing to some of the same kind of context in Romans when he talks about the, the body of the church, which is also the same order of typology, right? Like, so headship is, 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 is God, Christ, man, woman. But now he's talking about the body, which is the bride of Christ. And, and when he talks about the body, he's talking about how these things all just function together. They all have their part to play. They're in symbiosis. They're in harmony. They work together. And so, so all these things, this, this metaphor, I don't think is really about like command central. It's really about harmony, sympathy, and, 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 and continuity. Like that which creates a whole. So what does that mean? How, how, how does that f- figure into what we're talking about? I guess what I what I'm hoping for is that there's a way that we as the church can understand the issue of both authority and headship in the context of wholeness not in the context of division. Like this isn't a division of responsibilities. It's it's connoting continuity and connection. It's how much we are one of the same. And it's exactly why in Ephesians Paul can say No man ever yet hated his own flesh. Because your body just, it's built in. Like you don't, I don't choose to make my heart beat. I very rarely am in conscious control of my muscles. It's not about, it's not about a command. It's not about a dictation of will. It's about harmony. It's about autonomy it's about um, individualness and, and I think that's the, that's what that's what we should be striving for in, in fulfilling God's design in authority and headship is that what what's created out of that is a man and a woman who are whole. Who understand how to work together. Who understand how to be in common. How to have all those same things that my body has with my head. To be that. Like who... So if, if, if I go out in the hall, who went there? My body or my head? Do You see, it becomes absurd. It's absurd to make that kind of delineation. There's no way to make that a, give a sensible answer to that question. The only answer is I, I went, I did, I am, that's what marriage is supposed to be. I am, we are. And that's that, I think when we get to that place, that's where we're mirroring how it is in the Godhead, in the church, in the marriage, where we can say, We are. We are one. Like that's mystery of mysteries, right? We are one. We all together are one with him. He is one with him. And we are one with one another. Like that, that's the kind of stuff that you can write poetry about. That's the kind of stuff that you can sing about. That's the kind of stuff that makes your heart go pitter-patter. That's the kind of stuff that just... That's what's what worth living for. And you see, when you get down to that place, when you understand it for what its intention is and what God's doing with this stuff, how it seems like such a distraction to be stuck on who's in control. Like, that's not at all the point of any of these things. Yes, it ha- yes there's an order. has to be an order just like there has to be an order in my physical body just like i have to be arranged with muscles and cells and organs and and nerves but that's not the point to me being me point to me being me is these things that we're talking this autonomy this being this individuality When we when we reframe this this subject in those kinds of terms, I feel like things make a lot more sense. Like how how is it um, when something's not working, right? Like that's a that's a good test run for this philosophy of marriage. What happens when something isn't working well? With if, if my foot isn't working, if I break my foot. My foot feels the pain, but it's also in my head. I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm describing that very well. I don't know how you sense pain, but pain is in the place where it hurts and in your head. Like, both are true. It hurts in my foot and it hurts in my head. Like my, f- yeah. That's just what it is to be a person. I don't have to describe that to you. You all are people. But then what happens? If my foot hurt, Elisha hurt his foot this week step down off of a little retaining wall and sprain his ankle. So, so his body his body responds in pain and his head responds with a limp. He does whatever he can to get off of that pain. So what do I do when things aren't working well in my relationships? am I? How should I respond? if, if this principle works in a marriage, if this is what God's intentions are, then the autom- the automatic response is to care for to be tender with to help to bind up to get back to strength that's the purpose that's why when i read ephesians and i can understand why why this this could be difficult for sisters to read it always causes me pause like it causes me like a a fear like that's I I have to be responsible for that like that's my that's my responsibility to bear if something's wrong it's on me I'm the one I'm I'm I have to hold that. If things aren't well with her, if things aren't well with us, I'm the one that has to figure out how to limp. I'm the one that has to figure out how to care. I'm the one that has to figure out how to get to health. I'm the one that has to, it's on me, because that's exactly what Christ is doing in the heavenly realm for his church. He's tending her. He's watching over her. He's making sure she's healthy. He's fixing what's broken. He's putting in order. He's doing all those things for us so that we can thrive, and grow, and be, and prosper. That's his job. It's his place. It's his order, and it is mine. Health. It's the responsibility of the head, so how? So the question is: um, There's a lot of questions. What's the question I want to end with? Are we a patriarchal society? And if we are, what does that mean? Well, you know, just linguistically speaking, patriarchy is father rule. Pater-archy. And, you know, more sensibly, outside of just a direct literal translation, it means a society that's ordered around, basically, houses. economia that... Ukos, the house, the householder, groom's uh, bride and groomsmen. These Germanic terms come from the breadholder, the housekeeper, like those, like these institutional ideas around in the West. I don't, I don't know how the East works with this, but in the West, these things come from the household, how the house is oriented and run and managed, and patriarchy is where the father is the head of that institution the local home the city, the state the world that's patriarchy in a sense the answer to that question is yes headship is the, is the position of man in a home but I think that if I don't know if we can still use that term. It may be a dead term, maybe too loaded, may have too much baggage. I don't know. But whatever the alternative is, when we speak about these domains of authority, we have to speak about them in their proper biblical context, which is all those things that we've addressed, and many, many, many more. What it comes down to is that If we're going to make these claims about headship, about how God's ordered human social endeavors, especially the family and the church, if we're going to make those claims, then we need to be responsible with them. What I mean by that is that we need to hold them to the standards that they're held in the scriptures. If we want to... If we want to insist, and I think we should, that this headship order is the human universal. It's the way that we're supposed to be organized as the church and as as homes, then it needs to look like what the scriptures say it looks like. And when it doesn't look like that, we have to recognize and repair. If it's if it's not creating health, if it's not creating wholeness, if it's not creating harmony, if it's not creating Two as one. If it's not creating commonality, then it's not doing. Then it's not. Then it's not headship. It's something else. Because we should be able to expect that if we're doing this right, it's going to have the same fruit. If the responsibility runs the same up and down those that those tiered relationships, then the fruit needs to run up and down those tiered relationships. Okay, I think that's everything. Let's have a word of prayer and then we can close. Can you close us out, David? Yeah. Heavenly Father, it's impressive to look at the way you've made the world. I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that you'd reveal to us things about your order. And your purpose for, for us first and foremost, for our own place in the world, for what you want us to be doing, for my own marriage, for my own self, for my own faith. I pray that you'd reveal things to me. I pray that you'd reveal my failures and weaknesses. I pray that you'd reveal the cure for those things. But I pray that you'd also help us to see past ourselves. Help us to see authority and in, in the, the, the purpose behind all these things that you've created. We want to be faithful representations, Father. We want to properly represent what you're doing in humanity. Pray that you would make us whole people healthy and well, capable and strong in our minds, our bodies, our relationships, in every way that we can be so that we could accurately represent what you're doing among your people. We ask you for grace, for forgiveness, and for wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.